0: Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible
1: by the following sponsors. Dare to brew different with new and exciting hot varieties from Hopsteiner's industry-leading breeding program. Varieties like Sultana, Lotus, Bravo, Altus, and Contessa are now available in lupulin pellet form, packing more flavor and aroma per pellet. Discover more at hopsteiner.com.
0: Additional support provided by...
1: Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to BrewNinja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code Ninja 21
2: Low pressure freeze controls shutting off, oil failure issues on a compressor, uh, flow issues inside of the facility. Uh, A lot of times that can all get routed back to just uh, the glycol concentration not being adequate inside the reservoir.
0: This week on the show, how your chiller system works, troubleshooting tips, common mistakes, and easy preventative maintenance to keep it running for years to come.
2: Hi, my name's Damon Reed with Pro Refrigeration.
0: All right, Damon, there's a lot of confusing terms in refrigeration. Let's talk about BTUs, tons, and horsepower.
2: Yeah, so um, a, a BTU, the definition of a BTU is a British thermal unit. And that is the amount of heat that it takes to raise one pound of water by one degree Fahrenheit that takes one BTU. So when we measure refrigeration capacity or cooling capacity of a chiller system, we oftentimes refer to it in BTUs per hour of cooling capability. There can be some cross confusion between BTUs and horsepower, mainly because with refrigeration, it originated in the air conditioning industry and as the temp which which operates at a higher temperature range so what that means is with a higher temperature range the compressor capacity is higher than it will be at a lower temperature
0: can you give us some examples
2: yeah so uh uh, at 28 degrees which is our typical operating range for a brewery a five horsepower compressor is going to generate about thirty eight thousand btus per hour that same compressor, if we raise the temperature and operate at forty-five degree leaving fluid temperature, we're going to get close to sixty thousand BTUs per hour of capacity out of that same system.
0: Yeah, so quite a bit of difference there.
2: There is, there is, and I think uh, on the re- uh, in the air conditioning world, there was there's a lot of carryover between compressor horsepower to uh, tonnage and BTUs. And it can be, uh, the definition of one ton of refrigeration is 12,000 BTUs per hour. So if we take the capacity of a unit at 50,000 BTUs per hour, divide it by 12,000, that's going to give us roughly five tons of cooling capacity. And on a five horsepower unit, it would carry over, be very close to carrying over to the same horsepower range, not going to be the same as we operate at lower temperature ranges
0: how about giving us the 30,000 foot overview of sort of how a chiller system works
2: so the way a system works or a chiller system operates is we are taking our mechanical refrigeration circuit and we are cooling a reservoir filled with propylene glycol and water and the propylene glycol mixture is in the water to uh, to work as an antifreeze the reason we need the antifreeze is because we're supplying that fluid into the brewery at 28 degrees Fahrenheit. It's picking up the heat from the fermentation vessels from uh, a work heat exchanger, potentially a cold room and bright tanks. And we're bringing that back into the reservoir a higher temperature. Then we take that fluid, move it through the refrigeration circuitry, which is gonna have to operate at a lower, even lower temperature than what we're trying to achieve, typically by by around 5 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit. So if we're trying to make 28-degree glycol, we're going to have to run the refrigeration circuit at probably close to 20 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's that's the, the goal with the glycol is to prevent that from freezing on the refrigeration circuit.
0: Yeah, that's an important point because I bet a lot of folks think, well, hey, I just need freeze protection down to my set point of 28 or whatever that is. But really, you need much more freeze protection than that.
2: That is correct. Yeah, we have to, we have to, to, to be able to transfer heat from one media to another. We have to operate with a temperature difference.
0: All right. Well, let's dive into that refrigeration circuit. I've seen you use your circle of cool to describe the process at district meetings, but I'm not sure where in that circle you'd like to start.
2: Okay. So there's, on every refrigeration system, we break it down to there's five major components that are in every system. Uh, It's usually easiest to start with the compressor. So what the compressor's job in a system is, it's just a, it's a pump. It's a way of moving the refrigerant between the different devices that are in the system. The other um, uh, component is our condenser. And the condenser is uh, uh, can be either air-cooled or water-cooled. Most of the time we see that it's air-cooled. And if you were looking at a chiller system, that would be the, the device that has all the aluminum fins with copper tubes running through it. So its job is it dissipates the heat that's been picked up in, on the refrigerant And from the brewery, as well as the heat that we picked up from the compressor, and it dissipates that heat out of the refrigerant. Then it moves the refrigerant to the metering device. And the metering device is a component that it basically regulates the refrigerant flow through the system. So we have a big pressure change at the, at the metering device, and then the refrigerant enters the evaporator, and the evaporator is where we get the cooling to happen between the refrigerant and the, and the glycol. And there's separation between those. There's no mixing whatsoever. So they're separated uh, by either stainless steel plates or copper tubing. Um, as the refrigerant enters the evaporator, it boils off, and as it goes through a phase change, it absorbs heat from the glycol, and then it carries that heat back to the compressor. So, those mechanically are the, are the four components, and the fifth major component is the refrigerant itself. So, the refrigerant, we can make adjustments to systems to utilize different types of refrigerants to, to be able to get different operating parameters. And so, it's important to consider the refrigerant in the system because some refrigerants are they operate better at higher temperatures and some refrigerants operate better at lower temperatures.
0: Do you want to talk about in a little more detail sort of how that refrigerant, as it goes through that circle, how it changes phase and temperature?
2: Yeah, so if, if we take, for example, the refrigerant status between the compressor and the condenser, coming out of the compressor, uh, refrigerant temperature is going to be very high. Uh, uh, And by high, it could be anywhere from 160 to 190 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's also going to be a vapor. We call that a superheated vapor. Then that refrigerant, as it goes through the condenser, it starts to transition as we remove some of the heat and take the temperature down. We'll get the temperature down in a condenser to around 100 degrees Fahrenheit. But it also changes state from a vapor to a, a liquid and it, but the pressure of the of the refrigerant hasn't changed. So we'll maintain pressure. We're just playing with the temperature and the state of the uh, refrigerant itself. So then coming out of the condenser where I, I refer to it as a warm liquid. Um, um, but it's technically it's a subcooled liquid and that r- liquid refrigerant then enters the metering device and at the inlet of the metering device it will be let's say hundred degrees Fahrenheit as soon as we exit the metering device it starts to change temperature very rapidly and we'll, we'll we could be down around 15. 20 degrees Fahrenheit, leaving it, but also the the refrigerant pressure changes. Uh, you'll see anywhere from 40 to 50 psi uh, pressure leaving the metering device. the The metering device is usually going to be close coupled, meaning very. Close, not a lot of piping in between the metering device and the evaporator. And that's because as soon as we leave the metering device, we're starting our cooling process. So we want to keep all that cooling process inside the evaporator. So we go through the evaporator, the refrigerant now it had some vapor and some liquid mix. By the time we leave the evaporator, we want purely a cold vapor. And that cold vapor could be. Anywhere from 30 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit, and but it maintains that 40 to 50 psi pressure. We come into the refrigerant compressor, cool down the motor. The the compressor starts uh, um, compressing the refrigerant and moving it back into the condenser. It's just a constant cycle.
0: Very good. Okay, I guess let's get into. uh, You've got some some great images and um, descriptions of sort of the different components which would be very useful to someone who wants to learn more, and we're going to link to those in the episode description. But in the meantime, let's proceed on and talk about some of the preventative maintenance issues that are common uh, in chiller systems. I know you get asked this all the time, but how do you respond to brewers when they ask you how long their chiller is going to
2: last? Well, when... We'd like everybody wants to design and build for um, long-term use., uh, the refrigeration system and the chiller system is a it's it's mechanical equipment. So if it's maintained uh, and taken care of, it could last a very long time. Um, we have I have seen systems that were twenty plus years old. Um, but if systems aren't on a regular routine preventative maintenance, Uh, I have seen systems only last five to 10 years and then um, start having a lot of service issues. Um, So we we have a we have a preventative maintenance schedule that we recommend. uh, And most all manufacturers will have something along this line. Um, But um, down to daily, weekly, uh, monthly and semi-annually. Uh, preventative maintenance procedures.
0: Okay, well, let's go through some of that. Um, what are some of the things that you guys uh, recommend doing on a monthly basis?
2: So, on a monthly basis, the 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 top items that we would recommend checking, in, in or pro- and what I'll do is go through these these items, and then uh, we can discuss them in more detail. Uh, but each unit. At very minimum, I would check my condensers, Uh, mainly if it's an air-cooled condenser. Make sure that it's clear of any obstruction. Um, Make notes of your uh, glycol temperatures. Check for any audible, visual alarms, and also take a note of your actual glycol fluid level. Um, at the same time, another good thing to check is is with using a glycol refractometer, take a measurement of your glycol concentration and make sure that the antifreeze properties are still holding up. Um, the, the, those, those, having those items documented, the temperatures, the fluid level, the glycol concentration, having those set up on some sort of a note database, uh, even if it's just a, a, a spreadsheet that you maintain... It'll help give you some insight into potential issues coming down the road.
0: Let's take a deeper dive into some of those. So when you say that you're checking the condenser for obstructions, what kind of stuff are we looking for there?
2: So um, you would see things like uh, uh, this time of the year or in, uh, in in the spring, if you're in an area where they have a lot of cottonwood trees, Um After cottonwood season, you could see a lot of impacted uh, cottonwoods sticking to your condenser surface. Uh, We've seen, I've seen things like uh, uh, plastic shopping bags that have floated around any debris, construction debris, uh, particularly after a a new installation, uh, plastic, things like that could get up and, and uh, they'll get sucked up and, and, um on the condenser surface so as the fan's trying to move the air across that condenser it's going to bring in anything that's floating around in the air into that surface area
0: and obviously checking the reservoir level is probably pretty self-explanatory how often do you see the uh, you know what a change in glycol concentration rear its head like that
2: well it I have seen the glycol concentration maybe over the course of a uh, one year to two years where you'll slowly start to see a breakdown uh, on the fluid level. You might see a, a a change in freeze concentration of a half a degree um, um, Fahrenheit over the course of uh, one to two years um, I've also there's been instances where uh, on initial commissioning the fluid reservoir uh it drops as ferment fermenters are brought online and uh, sometimes we just forget to top up that reservoir coming up if you feel like you need to start dropping your set point below 28 degrees fahrenheit start maybe looking into What other items could be happening as far as flow rate? I'm
0: John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support.
1: Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, Try what's really new in Malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa. Even the best yeast deserves a helping hand with seltzer fermentation, which is why Pathfinder N-Pier Seltzer Nutrient ensures reliable and complete fermentation of a seltzer base while providing a clean, neutral fermentation profile. Not to mention it provides all the essential nutrients required by yeast for production of hard seltzer bases fermented from those sweet, refined sugars. Give your seltzer yeast a boost by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com and searching for Pathfinder N-Pier Seltzer Nutrient. Or call BSG at 1-800-374-2739.
0: And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Northern California hosts its fall meeting December 7th at Lagunitas Brewing Company in Petaluma. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets at Liney's Lodge in Chippewa Falls December 8th. And the annual District Ontario Technical Conference will be January 26th to the 28th, just outside of Toronto. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets at Surly's Shide Hall February 24th. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a
1: wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers. United we brew.
0: To the show. Damon, you want to talk a little bit about the various tools for verifying freeze concentration.
2: Yeah, so so you can use a hydrometer and, and, and get a, a gravity reading and there's some charts available online and we have them on our, our website as well. Um, but you're looking for a freeze point concentration on your fluid to be at least 20 degrees below your set point or whatever your coldest ambient temperature is going to be. It's important to consider your ambient temperature because if for some reason you have pumps off, um, you could, or you have a power failure, that fluid needs to be protected uh, to that, to those temperatures. So uh, at about zero degrees Fahrenheit freeze point, we're looking for, a gravity reading of about 1.035 um, from a, um, if you can get a glycol refractometer, it'll actually give you a reading in degrees Fahrenheit for what your freeze point is. So that makes it real easy to take a sample and you don't have to worry about conversions You don't have to worry about uh, calibrated temperatures. I know a lot of times um, the fluid samples that are taken need to be warmed up to 70 degrees Fahrenheit before the reading is is taken so that uh, the calibration is correct. With a glycol refractometer, you just take a, a, a small drip sample of your fluid, put it on the window, and it tells you exactly what your freeze concentration is.
0: Okay, you also mentioned inspecting that refrigerant sight glass. What are we looking for there?
2: Yeah, so uh, most systems are going to have a uh, refrigerant sight glass that is um, that's about the size of a quarter, and it, a lot, sometimes they will have a plastic cover over the top of them. You can remove that plastic cover, and while the refrigeration circuit is running, you want to look in that sight glass, and you should not be able to tell if it is clear or or if it's full or empty, it should just be solid clear. If you see bubbles moving through it, that's an indication that, you know, you could be low on charge. You could have something going on with refrigerant level in the system. You could have uh, a glycol concentration issue. Uh, it's probably a good good time to call some for tech support or call in a, a mechanical contractor to inspect the circuit for you.
0: A few other things you, meant, uh, you mentioned to inspect, uh, things like the actual system set point and making sure that hasn't changed. It seems like a lot of people's inclination when they're not getting the cooling they need is to just bump the set point down further. But as you've indicated, all that does is decrease your your system capacity in, in the end. So that, yeah. that's something to be, be aware of for sure. So why don't you let us know any other watchouts in terms of set point and then also get into sort of inspecting the actual uh, suction and discharge pressure. Pressures.
2: okay the the set point is something that is uh, um, a lot of times we um, um, understand when we're using a chiller system that that the lower we can make that temperature of the of the set point is going to give us a bigger Temperature difference between what's ha- what are what we're working with in the brewery. Like for example, if we're trying to to crash a tank from say seventy down to thirty two, uh, I've had people ask, "Well, can I can I operate my set point at at twenty degrees Fahrenheit as opposed to twenty eight degrees Fahrenheit to try and get a little faster uh, pull down?" And w- what we see is once you get glycol temperatures below 25 degrees Fahrenheit, you you can start to build a layer of ice inside of like a bright tank, for example. Uh, mainly, once you start getting the, the beer temperature down uh, close to 40, 35 degrees Fahrenheit, all of a sudden, everything will, will start to stall. And if you've ran your set point down below 28 degrees Fahrenheit, the odds... Are pretty high that you could have built some ice inside the the jacket and then the uh you'll you won't even be able to get below 30 uh 35 degrees fahrenheit 34 degrees fahrenheit so when i when when, when i'm working with somebody on who wants to drop set point below 28 degrees fahrenheit usually what we start to look for is a, a flow issue of the glycol inside the facility and there's usually on a on an installation we'll have Filtering that's in place on the supplier, the return uh, header, and that is more often than not has built up some debris and has started to plug and impede the flow through the system. Um, so, that's from a set point standpoint. Those are the thing that that's the main item that I would keep an eye out for. If you feel like you need to start dropping your set point below 28 degrees Fahrenheit, start maybe looking into what other items could be happening as far as flow rate.
0: Okay. And then on the um, uh, compressor suction and discharge pressures, I'm sure a lot of folks see the dials on their chillers and then say, hey, it's great that I have that information, but I have no idea where it should be. Uh, Could you give a little bit of advice in terms of kind of normal, acceptable ranges for those pressures?
2: Yeah, the 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 suction and discharge pressure ranges—they're going to be relative to the uh, the the type of system you have, uh, as well as the type of refrigerant that you have. For the most part, systems that are operating with uh, refrigerant 404A, their suction pressure while operating, I would expect to see that anywhere from uh, 35 to 45 psi, and on the discharge pressure, I would expect to see somewhere between 250 and 300 psi the 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 suction pressure and the discharge pressure will kind of work together uh, but the metering device kind of regulates that and ambient temperature will have a pretty big role on your discharge pressure so if it's a 100 100 105 degree day and you're seeing your discharge pressures 300 maybe 325 it, you might just take into account that, well, it's it's pretty hot outside. I've checked my condenser. I'm, I know I'm getting good airflow. Uh, you know, let's come back and check it. You know, in a in a few hours when the temperatures come down a little bit, there uh, on the suction pressure side of things, it's it's it should remain relatively stable throughout the the the, the refrigeration cycle.
0: You've also got another checklist for sort of quarterly uh, preventive maintenance. So let's take a look at that.
2: Sure. So on a, on a quarterly basis, I would take a look at systems uh, more so. So um, this is where I would start to look at having somebody that's a qualified um, refrigeration mechanic or a contractor involved, um, mainly because that's where I like to see things like uh, um, amperages. Taken of my motors, um, and uh, by motors I mean the, the refrigeration compressor, the circulation pump, the process pump, uh, or the condenser fans. Um, electrical motors will will trend over time. Uh, if you start seeing a uh, uh, an increase, a gradual increase in amperage, that can point to issues with an electric motor. Um, and if you start to see a gradual decrease. On uh, pumps in particular, uh, that could mean that you're starting to get a blockage downstream, uh, or it could be something going on with an impeller. Uh, the amperage readings can can really tell you a lot. So if you were having a contractor come out and and take those types of measurements for you, you could just request that they give you a report with those readings taken, and then store that somewhere safe where you could trend back to it and uh, start to get get some ideas of what's going on.
0: Nice. All right. Let's cover some um, some various watchouts. Why don't you talk a little bit about the um, type of glycol and water that should be put into these chiller systems?
2: Yeah. So when we get asked on on the type of water uh, to use in a system, um, generally uh, tap water is going to be okay, um, and I and I say that because. Generally, because it it matters what kind of of propylene glycol you're going to operate with. Uh, You want to find a propylene glycol that has a inhibitor package incorporated into it. And that inhibitor package can offer protection against uh, some some water quality issues. Um, The best scenario to operate with is to use deionized water. In the system, uh, that's gonna that's gonna already have a a, a solid uh, um, a solid water quality to it. That it won't be as critical with the inhibitor package to protect it, but the inhibitor package in the in the propylene glycol fluid is still important uh, because of uh, how it can protect the propylene glycol over the course of time. I know you've
0: you've mentioned in the past that you've seen some folks ruin chillers with power washers. Why don't you mention, talk about that?
2: Yeah, so um, cleaning um, cleaning of the air-cooled condensers. So you could get impacted items on the front of the condenser, um, such as like cottonwood uh, debris or any construction debris. If it's something that you could just uh, grab and just pull away, um, you want to do that. Um, I have a air conditioning system at home and that comes every June. It's completely full of uh, cottonwood debris. So I will use my uh, shop vac and just gently pull that cottonwood debris out. You don't wanna spray water into it to try and rinse it off because that that could just impact the coil. Uh, And once that uh, debris is packed into that fin surface it can be really hard to remove. Um, what I have seen people do before too is, is try and use a pressure washer and the aluminum fins on the condenser those are those are very delicate and if a pressure washer or any or compressed air anything with high pressure is used you could bend those aluminum fins and to the point where they it's it's not going to be repairable. As those bend over, it impedes the airflow through the coil, and you've basically destroyed the coil.
0: I've seen some mechanical contractors recommend chemical cleaning of the coils. Do you want to talk about that?
2: Yeah. So with chemical cleaning, if you if you have to be very careful. Um, different municipalities will have different regulations in place. Uh, some uh, facilities don't, or some municipalities will not allow any type of chemical cleaning whatsoever. Um, so they're corrosive. Uh, you, you really got to be careful with, with those types of chemicals. Uh, typically I'll see those being requested when, uh, there's been a lot of corrosion buildup, um, Or scaling on a system some areas where uh, ambient temperatures like Arizona for example Phoenix Arizona if they are trying to supplement the condenser capacity by using like a misting water misting system that can lead to scale buildup on a condenser uh, and and utilizing chemicals to remove that is one option But it's there. There's a lot of safety concerns. I wouldn't recommend that anybody that's not got experience or training with those chemicals, utilize them.
0: So scale is really the only uh, instance in which you should need to use a chemical cleaner.
2: That is correct. Yes. All right.
0: right. So how about some of the more common problems you guys get on service calls? Uh, what What do you what's kind of the at the top of your FAQ?
2: I think our probably our top top scenario is glycol concentration. Uh, we answer quite a few technical support calls uh, where we just uh, there'll be symptoms on the refrigeration system that can that point to a glycol concentration issue, uh, low pressure freeze controls shutting off. Uh, You can see see oil failure issues on a compressor, uh, flow issues inside of the facility. Uh, A lot of times that can all get routed back to just uh, the glycol concentration not being adequate inside the reservoir.
0: All right. Any recommendations for spare parts that um, brewers should keep on hand to keep their chillers running?
2: Yeah, some of the spare parts, probably one of the most common things I would look at on on any system is uh, fuses. Uh, Inside of the electrical controls, are there any fuses uh, that that could be replaced? Um, The lights, any of the indicator lights on the front of the uh, control panels, uh, those those are good to keep on hand. Um, One or two of those for replacement. Um, I I like to... Thinking of spare parts, temperature sensors as well. If you've got any temperature sensor elements on your system, it might be good to have one of those uh, hanging around. Uh, I probably wouldn't get into um, from a, uh, the user's perspective of uh, some of the deeper electrical components because those are things that you know should be diagnosed by a, a qualified technician before they're replaced, uh, to identify what caused the failure. Uh, fuses are something that if you have, uh, a voltage spike or something with your incoming power, you can replace the fuse. Try it one time. If it blows the fuse again, call in a mechanic.
0: Yeah. I I can't tell you how many times I've come in the day after uh, a big thunderstorm or something. And, um, you know, having spare fuses, uh, got us back up and running right away.
2: Yeah, yeah. Having fuses and some of the fuses uh, that can be used on the industrial refrigeration side of things, you might not be able to get easy access through like a uh, Home Depot or Lowe's or something like that. You might have to go through a refrigeration or an electrical wholesaler.
0: That was Damon Reed here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Check the show notes for links to Damon's district presentation and to his Master Brewers webinar if you want to see images for the refrigeration circuit, the circle of cool, or any of the system components we discussed today. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors there's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.